Let's turn to God's Word now together. Our first reading from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 20. This is the living and abiding Word of God. Let's listen to it carefully now. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, of springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which there were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought you water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Now our New Testament text, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew 
4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan! For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it now. Our Lord God, we pray once again that you would open our hearts to receive your word. Apart from your grace, your work, your spirit, we will not receive your word in faith. We need you to work, to plant the seed deep in our hearts, make it bear fruit unto repentance, unto new life in Christ. We pray that you would give us this now, that you'd open our hearts to receive your word in faith. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. What's your view of temptation? When you think of that word, temptation, what comes to mind? Our culture's view is pretty casual towards temptation. There's a band named Temptations, right? Temptation is, is casual, fun, fairly harmless. Oscar Wilde, the writer of the the late 19th century, wrote, I can resist anything except temptation. That's often our culture's view towards temptation. Yeah, it's, it's no big deal, really. Nothing to worry about. Matthew chapter 4 gives quite the different message, doesn't it? As Jesus is tempted there by Satan, he treats it seriously. What's your view of temptation? Maybe you don't think it's a casual thing like our culture does, but maybe you think, well, um, yes, it's important, it's a, it's a reality, but it's not really like an everyday sort of reality for my life. Temptation's for the, for the big ones, for the bad ones, right? It's, it's for the, the big bad sins. It's not about me um, being proud, losing my, losing my temper, uh, failing to, to be patient with God's providence, doubting His goodness, 
the temptation is not really about those things, right? It's, it's about the, the big things, the serious things. But loved ones, what do we see as Jesus is tempted here, right? These temptations are, are about the details and about the heart and about where your heart is before the Lord. These are serious things. And this text is a warning to us not to treat temptation casually and not to see it as something that doesn't relate to me. Temptation is very real. The, the powers of darkness are very real. And if we don't acknowledge that and don't see the danger we are in, then we're in that much more danger because we don't. Or maybe, maybe you do see how serious temptation is and you realize how personal it is and how important it is for you, but you you continue to struggle with temptation and your failures, past failures perhaps, as you gave into temptation, they continue to haunt you. And present struggles that, that don't seem, you don't seem to be gaining progress in your Christian life. And you worry about the future. What, what if I'm tempted in that way or that way? What's my hope? What's my confidence, right? You, you resonate with that line in the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know your heart. Quick to wander from the Lord. And you resolve, right? Sunday comes, you hear the word, and you resolve, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy your grace, I'm going to do better. And then as the week unfolds, there's the same sin, struggling with them again. What do we do with this? What, 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 about, what about in this situation? Well, in this situation, loved ones, uh, in that context, in that position, Matthew chapter 4 gives us a wonderful word of encouragement and a promise of victory for us. This passage, Matthew 4, is about temptation, as we've been saying. And it's critical for us in understanding the seriousness of temptation and, and, and also how we are to overcome the tempter, overcome Satan and the temptations that come into our lives. But not, first of all, as a model. That's often how I've, I've heard this passage explained, and perhaps you have too, that here we have a wonderful model of how to resist temptation. Memorize Scripture. Have it at the ready. Temptation comes, deploy the Scripture that you've memorized to that particular temptation. And that's a good thing. There is a wonderful model for us here in how Christ fights temptation. But the point of this passage, the main point, is not to give us a model for how to overcome the tempter. That's there, but that's secondary. The first thing here, loved ones, is just to show us what Christ did in overcoming the tempter. This, this passage in, in Matthew 4 is not about imperatives, commands. It's about indicatives, about, about gospel realities of what God has done in Christ, already accomplished. The gospel is being proclaimed in Matthew chapter 4. Christ is being held out to you in his perfection as your Savior. In Matthew chapter 4. That's the main thing. And seeing Him and trusting Him as we see Him in the text here, that's what will encourage you and strengthen you and build you up to go be faithful as well. So with that in mind, loved ones, let's dive in to the text here before us. Let's let's unpack this together. Verse 1 sets the stage for the drama of the story here. It says this, Then Jesus was led up into the wilderness by the Spirit 
to be tempted by the devil. Remember where we were last week. And at the end of chapter 3, Jesus goes out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Uh, he, he, he's, he's, he's numbering himself with the transgressors by being baptized. He's saying, I'm identifying with sinners to bear their sins. God sees that. The Father sees that. And he's pleased with his son. Pours it, puts his spirit on his son. And then he proclaims at the end of chapter 3, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it seems very likely this is one of the high points of Jesus' earthly life. Right, he sees heaven opened, and he hears the audible voice of the Father say to him, You're my beloved Son. I am well pleased with you. What a, what a glorious experience that must have been for our Lord Jesus. Sweet assurance there, right? What, what confidence and delight must have filled him as he heard those words from his Father. And then we look at him in that position, and we think, well, what's next? Right, he, he's equipped for ministry. He's, he's ready to go out and, 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 and be the Savior. What's he going to do next? Some, some powerful miracles, some, some preaching perhaps. Matthew 4, verse 1, comes like an ice-cold shower. Startle us awake. What happens here? What does Jesus do next? The Spirit who has come on him leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And it's not a quick and easy thing. It's not, a, it's not a quick process at all. This is going to be long and hard. Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Imagine you haven't eaten anything since Christmas. Right? You're hungry. Incredibly hungry. Never been so hungry. Jesus eats no food for over a month. No sooner has God then told him, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, that he sends him out in the desert to go hungry for 40 days and 40 nights to test him and push him to the very limits of physical and spiritual endurance. Surprising, isn't it? Seems like a strange way for God to show love to his son. Listen to what we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We know this. Fathers discipline their sons. Uh, they, 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 they train their sons. They teach their sons. They test their sons. We see this in the Old Testament through the people of God. We read about this already in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God testing his people. Uh, we see it in the New Testament. We see it in our own experiences. Right? We come to faith in Christ. It doesn't get easier. God tests us, challenges us. Samuel Rutherford, Scottish Puritan, writes this, The greatest temptation out of hell is to be without temptations. If my waters would stand, they would rot. Faith is better of the free air and of the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us to handle our weapons. That's why God tests us. Train us, teach us as sons. And not only is this true of the sons of God, it's true of the Son 
of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't exempt from this. He too had to suffer and, and learn obedience through suffering. Not that there was a lack in his righteousness, but God was going to train him through difficulty and hardship for obedience to him. Hebrews 5.8, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, we saw all this, uh, we saw this in Deuteronomy as well here. Deuteronomy 8, which we read earlier, that um, this isn't the only son of God that's been treated this way. Jesus suffers temptation, and he, he's led out into the wilderness. And as we see him here being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights to be tempted and tested, we should think of that other son of God, Israel, in the wilderness, 40 years, not 40 days, but there's a correlation there, being tested, going hungry. The nation of Israel is portrayed as God's son over and over in the Old Testament. It comes out so clearly, Exodus 4, 22. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So as Jesus goes out to the wilderness to be tested, what's he doing? He's, he's repeating Israel's life story. In his own life, he's, he's repeating the, the history of Israel in his own experience. We saw this earlier, right? Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God had given Israel a wonderful deliverance from Egypt, and then he leads them into the testing. He saves them, he, he confirms his love for them, and then he leads them into their time of trial and temptation. Forty years. And here's Jesus. He himself, the embodiment of true Israel. He is God's son, just as Israel was. Uh, he is all that Israel should have been. And now here he is, it's his turn to go out in the wilderness and be tested 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, living in the rugged wilderness all by himself, and then the full onslaught of Satan. What's that going to prove about his heart? What's that going to expose about Jesus? Let's look at the temptations now. The first temptation, verse, uh, verses 2 to 4. The temptation here in verses 2 to 4 is to satisfy yourself. Satisfy yourself. Jesus hasn't eaten any food for 40 days. It's a long time, right? He's hungry. He's weak. Satan comes to tempt him. He says in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Satan acknowledges there that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not questioning that. He's saying, you're the Son of God. Right? He's saying, God himself just said that you were the Son of God. The previous chapter, chapter 3. He says, if you're the Son of God, you should have certain rights and privileges, shouldn't you, Jesus? You don't deserve to be suffering from hunger like this. You don't deserve to be in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. You deserve to have your desires and your needs met and satisfied. He's not tempting Jesus to do something inherently wrong or sinful. He's saying, Jesus, you're the Son of God. You have, you, you have these rights and privileges that should be yours. And you have the power to do it. One word from you, these stones become bread, and your hunger is over. He's tempting Jesus here to misunderstand 
his role. He's, he's trying to persuade Jesus that because he's the Son of God, it means he doesn't have to be the suffering servant too. He's also trying to persuade Jesus to misuse his power. Jesus has submitted himself. Right, the, the eternal Son of God uh, set aside uh, set aside his divine glory as he, as he came to earth. He's still divine, eternal Son of God, but he takes on human nature and he humbles himself to be bound by the, by the limitations of human nature. And he depends on the Spirit and the Spirit's power. And so we'll see that by the Spirit's power, yes, he can turn five loaves and two fishes into food for 5,000 people. But it's only when the Spirit of God commands him to do it. When God leads him to do it. And that's not what God has commanded him to do here. Here, God has commanded him to go hungry and suffer and wait to obey. Wait on him. Satan saying, you can do this, therefore you should do this. Satisfy yourself. Loved ones, we're so susceptible to these same temptations, aren't we? How often do you think, I don't have to, I didn't sign up for this. I don't have to, I don't have to put up with this. This is beneath me. Uh, or, 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 or think, uh, I, I deserve something better than what God is giving me right now. And that's fine. It, it's, 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 it's right to say, yes, we need to take care of ourselves. And, uh, and, and we, should, we should see that our needs are met. That, that sometimes we need a break. Um, um, that's wise stewardship. But that's very different from saying, I deserve this from you now, God. We are called to the pattern of Jesus' life here, pattern of humility, waiting on the Lord, suffering with Christ. Which of us, loved ones, when we have power to satisfy ourselves, doesn't? How long would our determination last in this same situation that Jesus is put in here? If we went through this, all our hearts would be exposed, right, as, as, as selfish as, uh, as more committed to satisfying ourselves than pleasing our Heavenly Father. How does Jesus respond to this temptation, though? He doesn't hesitate at all. The devil's words are spoken, and Jesus, like a master swordsman, blocks the thrust and returns the blow. And he says, and Deuter- he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus says, satisfy myself, Satan. I am satisfied. I am perfectly satisfied when I'm heeding the voice of God, when I'm living by His Word, when I'm living in obedience to His Word. I am satisfied. That's my meat and my drink. It's what I love to do. And, Satan, God did not send me to satisfy my own needs and wants and desires. He sent me to be the son who suffers and saves, to feed others, to become the bread of life broken and given to others, not to come and serve my own self and satisfy myself. Not for a split second does Jesus falter. So Satan tries another tactic. This is our second temptation here. He tries to get Jesus to serve himself. So he said, satisfy yourself, turn the stones into bread. Now he says, Jesus, serve yourself. Make God serve you. Verses 5 through 7. 
what's going on in this temptation? The devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. We're not told how. must have been some kind of supernatural way. But uh, here they are on top of the temple, looking down probably into the Kidron Valley. We're not sure exactly how high this is. Estimates are it's probably around 450 feet. Picture standing on top of a 45-story building. Temptation to jump from that height is probably not too strong for most of us. What's the temptation here? Satan says, jump and God will save you. He takes Scripture, twists it, and says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. What's the temptation? It's that Satan's tempting Jesus to make God serve him instead of the other way around. He's saying, if you're the son of God, surely God will take care of you. He's promised to protect his people. He's promised to do this in Psalm 91. You won't strike your foot against a stone. Angels will will bear you up. If you jump, God will be forced to prove himself to you. He'll be forced to keep his word and operate on your timetable and serve you and meet your demands. The Israelites in the wilderness were tempted in exactly the same way. We see them fail. They were in the wilderness and they were sick of God testing them. Um, they wanted to test God. Right? They're sick of God testing and, 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 and causing them you know, difficulty and trouble in order to, 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 to test them and sanctify them. And they want to test God. They're tired of being the servants. They want God to serve them. In Exodus 17, as they continue through the wilderness towards Mount Sinai, they come to a place where there's no water. Now, back in Exodus 15, this already happened. They come to a place where there's no water. And uh, they grumble against God, and he provides them with water. In Exodus 16, they don't have food. They grumble against God. He gives them food. And then in Exodus 17, here they are doing the same thing all over again, complaining and grumbling and doubting God. And God tells Moses, strike a rock and water will come out of it. Moses does, uh, and water comes out of the rock and satisfies their thirst. But Moses names the place Masa, which means testing. Because, as Exodus 17 says, uh, Exodus seventeen seven says, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us? Or not. That's how the Israelites are testing the Lord in these ways, as they demand for Him to show up and act for them on their terms. They're saying to God, Are you among us or not? You've promised to be our covenant God. Doesn't look like you are. Prove yourself to us. God has just delivered them from Egypt with signs and wonders and brought them through the Red Sea, delivered them graciously from slavery, but they are saying, We're thirsty, we're hungry. It's been a few hours, it's been a few days. Prove yourself to us. We demand that you serve us. And again, loved ones, isn't that something that does tug at our hearts? God should serve me. God should operate on my terms and on my timetable. I shouldn't have to wait on Him. I shouldn't have to live by faith. I should be able to see the concrete evidence of His 
commitment to me all the time. Every time we grumble at God's providence, we're doing this. Get stuck in traffic, construction or something, right? And we start grumbling, getting frustrated, getting angry, whatever the situation is. What's it revealing about our hearts? The testing is exposing our hearts. I want God to serve me. I want Him to operate according to my agenda, not have to live by faith. Why should I always have to be His servant? Now, loved ones, if anything could demand something of God and have some kind of ground to stand on in doing so, surely it would be Jesus. That's part of Satan's temptation to him. You're the Son of God. But how does Jesus respond? He quotes Scripture again. He could have quoted from the same chapter that Satan was quoting from. Interestingly enough, Satan quotes from Psalm 91 and uh, says, you know, uh, test, uh, uh, God, God will not uh, uh, let your foot strike a stone. The angels will preserve and protect you. Psalm 91 goes on in the very next verse to say that you will, you will crush the adder and the serpent underfoot. Now, Jesus, there's a good verse, right? Crush the serpent's head. Interesting, Satan doesn't want to quote that verse. But anyway, Jesus doesn't go there. He could have, but he goes to a different text in Scripture. He goes back to Deuteronomy again. All his quotations here are from Deuteronomy. He turns to Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, and he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And in Deuteronomy 6.16, Moses is talking there about how the Israelites did this. They tested God by demanding water. We just talked about that as a proof of God's blessing and love and presence with them. And Moses says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus hears Satan's temptation, sees through it right away and says, we are not to test God. We are to live by faith, serve him, wait on him, trust him, not demand that he come and serve us and operate on our terms. Jesus is faithful for the second time. Third temptation. Satan tries one more. This one is this. Save yourself from suffering. He said, satisfy yourself. That was the first. Serve yourself was the second temptation. Now he says, save yourself from suffering. We read this in verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The devil is the ruler of this world. Jesus calls him this in John 14, 30. So the devil isn't completely bluffing here when he says, these are my kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you. Not a complete lie. He is the ruler of this world. He has command of the kingdoms of this world. And he's holding out to Jesus something very similar to what Jesus came to earth to do. To conquer, set up his kingdom, and make the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That's what Jesus came for, to to bring the kingdom of heaven, to wrest the kingdoms of the world from Satan and make them submit and bow to him. Jesus came to claim the glory that belongs to him from all the kingdoms of the world. So Satan is saying to Jesus, I can give you what you came for. The Father has called the Son to win these 
to, to, to bring his kingdom and to, and to conquer these other kingdoms through obedience and suffering. The Father has called the Son to humble himself, to suffer, to live a life of, of, of suffering, and then to lay down his life at the end uh, as he dies on the cross, he's buried in the tomb, and then only at that point to be glorified and exalted and to receive the kingdom. Satan is saying, I can give you what you came for a lot more easily than that. It doesn't have to be so hard. There's an easier way without any suffering required. You can save yourself the pain of bearing the sins of your people. You can save yourself bearing the wrath of God on the cross. You can save yourself from all that and you can still get what you want. Just bow down and worship me. Just once. Just bend your knees and Jesus, it's all yours. No suffering required. No washing your disciples' dirty feet. No being flogged and whipped and crowned with thorns. No cross. No tomb. Just the reward. What would you do? God tells us, loved ones, He says, the way to glory is through humiliation. The way to the crown is through bearing your cross. Satan comes to us. He says it doesn't have to be that way. I'll give you what you want. If you worship me instead, I wouldn't require all this suffering. I'll give you an immediate reward. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Now what we want? What does Jesus do? He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't, he doesn't weigh his options. He doesn't look at the kingdoms of the earth for a few minutes and think, you know, this is, this is a good offer, Satan. No, he, he says to say in verse 10, Away with you, Satan! For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. He's immediate in his response. He's ruthless in his response. Get out, Satan. I don't want to hear any more of it. You can't tempt me. Why does Jesus choose what he does here? Why does he choose the path of suffering? Why should we? Jesus knows there is only one God. And God has said, as Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy 6, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus, his whole, whole heart is committed to God and to worshiping God. He knows that only God is worth our worship. So he's never to bow to anyone or anything else. And, and only God can give him the true and lasting and good reward. He cites Deuteronomy 6 to, um, to Satan here as he rebuffs this temptation. Deuteronomy 6 is at the very heart of the Old Testament saints' confession of faith. It has the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And Jesus, his heart is keeping that perfectly. He loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so nothing can tempt him to bow to anyone else because he loves the Lord with his whole heart. So he chooses right now, at the very outset of his ministry, his earthly ministry, he's choosing to, 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 to take the path of suffering and humiliation and obedience to his Father and not bow to any other. And he's going to follow this path. It's going to go down lower and it's going to get darker. It's going to get harder. He's going to take it all the way to the cross. And there on the cross, the same temptation is going to come. Matthew 27, 40. 
You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. At the end of his earthly ministry, he's on the cross. The same temptation comes. There's an easier way. Get off the cross. But he won't. He stays there, committed, hangs on the cross, bears the wrath of God, stays obedient, stays faithful, and then, and then he does get the reward. The humiliation ends, the glory begins, and he gets everything the Father promised, and so much more, so much more than anything Satan could have given him. He gets all authority in heaven and on earth. All principalities and powers under his rule. Loved ones, what does all this mean for us then? We've seen Jesus as he defeats, the, 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 as he defeats Satan here. What, is, what does all this mean for us? Five things, five things that we want to see together by way of application. First, just look at Jesus. Look at his obedience and just how perfectly he defeats every temptation that comes. He is true Israel here. And as true Israel, what's he doing? He is rewriting Israel's story. Right? He, he came to, to kind of be the replay, in a sense, of, of Israel, but not just to replay their history, but to rewrite it so that God's firstborn son is now faithful and obedient. And at every point where Israel and the Old Testament failed, Jesus, the true Israel, God's son, succeeds. It's glorious. And, and loved ones, this means that he doesn't just do this for Old Testament Israel. He does it for you. Think of your failure in the face of temptation. Jesus takes that away. And he says, God looks at you in the perfect righteousness of my faithfulness in temptation. He rewrites your story. So that you, as a son of God, adopted in the Son, are faithful, counted faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. Counted as Jesus is righteous. Look at, I mean, what we saw here in Matthew chapter 4, that perfect obedience of Jesus Christ and his heart for obedience to his Father, that's counted as yours. It's glorious. So what do we do as temptation does come this week, right? Even today, temptations come, whatever they might be. As you feel the tug of, of, of sin, what do you do? You look at Jesus Christ in Matthew 4 and just how perfectly he kept God's law. You remember, God counted that to me. Second thing we should do here, not only does Jesus offer us a new record, he also offers us his help. We are united with him by faith. We're trusting in Him. We have this union with Him, this relationship with Him, and He gives us strength to fight temptation. We read about this over in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. You have a high priest who suffered and was tempted just like you are. Right? That's what we read in Hebrews 2.18. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. Tempted. Jesus understands the suffering of temptation and testing. He's been through it. He passed the test, and now he's in heaven as your high priest praying for you that you might pass the test too. 
This reminds me of Jesus' words to Simon Peter in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And that's what Jesus is doing for you and for me right now in heaven. He's praying and interceding on our behalf that our faith might not fail. Third thing, Jesus is not only the one who is praying for us, but he has given us his spirit. Jesus withstood temptation in the wilderness by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and strengthened to obey by the Spirit. And now he's given us the same Spirit. We have all the resources that he had to resist temptation. The Holy Spirit in us. New life. We've been baptized with the Spirit by Jesus Himself if we're trusting in Christ. So as temptation comes, remember that. Ask for His grace. Seek the Spirit's aid. How do we do that? We see it in what Jesus does, don't we? This is the fourth thing. Jesus does give us a wonderful model for resisting temptation. What does Jesus do every time a temptation comes? He takes up the sword of the Word of God. He proves the truth of Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's how the Spirit works. He takes the word, he roots it in our hearts, and he causes it to bear fruit into new obedience. That's the means he uses. So, what should we be doing? Don't wait for the temptation to come. Get in the Word of God. Read it and study it and, 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 and meditate on it and think about it and memorize it. And that will strengthen you. That will strengthen you for obedience, just as Jesus was strengthened by it for obedience. Fifth thing, know that the battle will end. The temptation, right, it feels intense and strong in the moment, but it's going to be over. God and His providence isn't going to keep on testing you and testing you and testing you without a relief or without any kind of uh, a time of refreshment. This is what we see here as the devil leaves Jesus. Verse 11 here, Matthew 4, tells us that the devil leaves and angels come and minister to Jesus. God has not forgotten His Son. Yes, He tested Him in the wilderness. But now He sends help. He sends refreshment. He sends encouragement. Jesus didn't demand it. He waited, he trusted, and God brought it in his time. And so should we, loved ones. And then finally, sixth thing. Jesus gives us the wonderful confidence that not only will the battle in, the, you know, in God's providence, their struggles with the temptation, uh, we do find victory and we do find rest in this life, but Jesus gives us the confidence that the, the war is going to be won. In fact, it's already been won, in a sense, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. He starts doing that right here in Matthew 4, defeating every temptation. He'll, he'll go on to do it in his death and resurrection. But um, the, 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 the encouragement for us, loved ones, is that if that victory has been won by Christ, we also, in Christ, will find a final victory, right? Romans sixteen twenty, Paul says to the church there in Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So, loved ones, in your temptation, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Follow his pattern. Follow his example. But trust him in it all as your Savior who crushed Satan for you and who's given you the spirit that you might walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray together. Lord, we give thanks to you for the faithfulness, the glorious obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the spirit of Christ. And we pray that you would equip us and enable us to walk in obedience and faithfulness to you, our God, with wholehearted devotion to you. This we pray that you would do for Jesus' sake. Amen.